0: Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.
1: What is it that makes something sacred? Did our remote ancestors know something we don't when it came to where and how to live? Can a place alter your state of consciousness? Hello
2: there and welcome to the 295th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and all those pretty weird questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. So we're welcoming back an old friend tonight. But before we do, we have our weekly paranormal contest. So last week's question was, what Colorado hotel is considered one of the
1: most, uh, the ten most haunted places on Earth? Well, that would be the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado, scene of the 1997 film The Shining, and a place where the ghost stories very much are encouraged by the management, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, The winner was Mike Page of Springfield, Massachusetts. So this week's question is, a few
2: months ago, what Swedish explorer claims that he found what could only be a crashed UFO at the bottom of the ocean between Finland and Sweden? So get that right and win an autographed autographed copy of my dad's most popular book, Footsteps in the Attic.
1: And feel free to join the discussion this evening. Call us at 401-766-1240 or 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the United States. Our good friend, best-selling British-born author Freddie Silva, returns to the show this evening to discuss his remarkable book just re-released under the name Legacy of the Gods, The Origin of Sacred Sites and the Rebirth of Ancient Wisdom. Freddie is one of the world's leading researchers of ancient systems of knowledge and the interaction between temples and consciousness. He is also a best-selling author and filmmaker. His lectures interne- He lectures internationally with keynote presentations at the International Science and Consciousness Conference, the International Society for the Study of Subtle Energies and Energy Medicine, in addition to appearances on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, the BBC, video documentaries and radio shows like this one. He is described by the CEO of Universal Light Expo as, quote, perhaps the most, the best metaphysical speaker in the world right now, unquote. Freddie currently resides not too far from us in the beautiful state of Maine. One of his prime websites is www.invisibletemple.com. Freddie Silva, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal.
0: Hello, Paul. Good to be back.
1: Very good to have you. Ben's going to take us uh, on the beginning of our journey here. All right. So uh, what makes one place more sacred
2: than any other?
0: Aha. Uh-huh. It's been the big question in everybody's mind. Um, I was looking at um, some very ancient uh, myths about how the world was created. There was an interesting story about the Hopi creation myth, above others. Where they actually talk about how uh, there are places on Earth uh, where... Uh, the earth itself sends streams of life force to the surface and uh, when that happens the uh, whole uh, surface of the earth becomes much more abundant with life and uh, they also state that there are some portions of the earth that were much more beneficial than others with this life energy and they call them the spots of the fawn. and at these spots of the fawn apparently people can be transformed into gods into bright stars and eventually uh, those became the landscape temples Uh, throughout North America and then eventually began to build temples uh, with with stones and uh, mounds on top of them all around the world and it made me wonder was there something very special and unusual that made uh, these normal places on the face of the earth uh, sacred and uh, there's been a lot of work done by science to actually validate this part Uh, there was um, a book released not too long ago uh, by a gentleman called the John Burke who unfortunately has passed away and uh, he was actually looking at it from a, a point of view of uh, electromagnetism, and he came to the conclusion, after measuring many of the sacred sites throughout England and North America, that uh, every one of them appears to be sighted on hot spots called conductivity discontinuities. And it's basically uh, spots on the face of the Earth where geomagnetic field interacts with the telluric currents that flow along the surface of the Earth. And where these things happen, there is a certain uh, geomagnetic or electromagnetic anomaly which influences the human body. Uh, now you don't have to remember all of that because the Sioux uh, natives actually called it by another name. They just refer to it as scan, much easier to remember. Mm. So that's what differentiates the, uh, the, the 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 whole face of the earth in these little hot spots and that's where people have gone for thousands, tens of thousands of years to actually have uh, shamanic experiences. Hidden states of consciousness, and indeed be transformed into God, into bright stars.
1: Wow. Go ahead, Ben. That was
2: a very good explanation. No, we'll so, <laughs> we hear
1: some of the, the next questions. Okay. Yeah, I know. Um, okay, I can go now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, we're not going to put you on the spot, but is it, is things we've yeah, experienced. Get off the show. I, I, no. I, I wanted to hit you with just some of the things we've experienced in yes. some of these places. But anyway, go ahead, Ben.
2: All right, so I um, actually you kind of already mentioned where these energies come from, but do you want... Electromagnetics. Uh, I don't know if you feel like if we need to go into greater detail on that. So, well, I glanced through your book really quickly before we got to the show because I I didn't know what we were doing today. So, I noticed that there's a lot about sacred uh, geometry, and most everything is a triangle. So, what is the significance of that, or what is sacred geometry?
0: Well, sacred geometry basically is, is an extrapolation of our understanding of how the universe works. Uh, If you look at the measurement of the space between planets and their uh, uh, perfectly spherical orbits, that is, when you take the two two mean orbits and you create a perfect circle between planets, uh, if you look at the space between them, they can actually be defined to an extraordinary degree of accuracy. Uh, I'm talking about 99.9% by straight lines, which when they converge, they create these beautiful shapes which we call sacred geometry. That's where the term really came from. It was the... uh, the, you know, the measurement of the movements between the planets. But the same geometry is also found in uh, nature all around us. And in fact, it's even found in the crystalline structure of human DNA. Uh, so there are seven basic sacred uh, geometric shapes that are, that are to be found in sacred sites all around the world. And by this, I mean how the relationship of the elements of temples are all related one to another, uh, using an, an invisible geometric array. And uh, when you go to these places, let's say the Great Pyramid, as an example... Uh, you are actually picking up the energy of that building uh, in its relationship to the geometry that underpins it. So if you look at the, the slope angle of the Great Pyramid in Egypt, for example, you'll find that it corresponds to the seven-pointed star, uh, which is the, the, the shape most associated with the note to the music scale. But the one uh, thing that everybody uh, was talking about in the early days of esoteric movements and Gnostic movements and paganism uh, was the triangle, which eventually comes into our Christian vernacular as the Holy Trinity, hmm. as an expression of the perfection uh, of uh, how the universe is created.
1: It's yeah, three of the is the perfect number, yeah.
0: And uh, what I found was that uh, this shape, uh, this perfect trinity, whether it's a right-angled triangle or an isosceles triangle, uh, appears to be related to the way that temples are spaced out around the world, which I found extraordinary. Considering that uh, most of these places began as uh, sacred mountains, and uh, you know, at the time when I I discovered this, I mean, it was one of those days. uh, And you live in New England, you know how it works in the winter. Mm -hmm. Uh, The winters a very If if it It
1: works in the winter, yeah,
0: yeah, it gives you time to think, (laughs) (laughs) and you start hearing voices in your head, kind of like uh, Stephen King just up the road from here, yeah, uh, which explains a a lot of his books. And uh, I looking at the relationship i suddenly had this vision of how ancient sacred sites were related to each other using the holy trinity or the triangle and i began looking at stuff in india with their holy mountains and looking at how certain mountains were holy uh, and related to each other by by the same myth or by the same age because you, you can't just make this stuff up as you go there has to be a relationship in what mm. you're looking for and i found that only three of these mountains were, were linked to each other by the uh, uh, the mystery of the god Siva and his uh, works here on Earth. And, of course, Siva is the uh, the counterpart of the god Vishnu. And uh, Vishnu is also mentioned in the Rig Veda as always taking three steps. And I was wondering, why is he always taking three steps? Why is his power always imprinted on the Earth in three steps? Well, if you follow the logic of the uh, the, the three steps turning into a triangle and you map this triangle to the holiest places in India, You have three of its most sacred mountains aligned exactly, and I mean exactly, at a right angle triangle, covering 1,650 miles. And when you're dealing with natural mountains, you've got to wonder, how on earth do they do this, and how do they measure that to such a degree? Uh, It's quite an extraordinary
1: find. Well, the whole triangle thing means a lot to us. It it didn't mean much to me until... Recent years when I started working with uh, something I'd never done in, in, in the distant past which is working with shamans and uh, one one of whom is sitting next to me right now and uh, we, we uh, let me just hit you with this we have be, have begun to discover triangles everywhere uh, working with a paranormal case in Connecticut that began with the, the quote unquote ghost thing seemed relatively uh, interesting because the woman had read my uh, 2002 book on which brings in the multiverse and all this stuff, you know, the, the re- reevaluation of the whole ghost thing as uh, relevant to uh, to that theory rather than spiritualism, and uh, th- that the more we looked at the case, the more it grew, the more depth it took on, and we ended up triangulating a whole area that was affected by this. And by, as you say, I mean, I can't think of a better explanation than what what you said previously about uh, concentrated areas of electromagnetic energy. This is what it really does seem to be. To add, to add, um,
0: if you add to that the fact that uh, when you're looking at the triangle, which we take, it's like the five pointed star, the pentagram, we take it so much for granted, and yet it's one of the most sacred things available on Earth. You look at the history of the uh, the pentangle; Mm -hmm. uh, it's very profound. It's even hardwired into human DNA as a crystalline structure. But if you actually think about it in terms of a three dimensional shape, the triangle becomes the tetrahedron, and the tetrahedron is the building block of the entire atomic structure of the universe. So that's now right. you can see how why these things do happen uh, in uh, in triangles. There is something that's hardwired into all of us, and uh, subconsciously, I think these things are not only happening on the landscape, but I think we pick up on it as well.
1: Well, we wanted to get into uh, you know, how they how they would know about all this and this uh, this very elegant expression of the nature of the universe in, in, in these these even just just these shapes and these these sacred sacred architecture, etc. But Uh, As we triangulated this particular triangle, so to speak, one spot was essentially closed off and there were reports of troops and all sorts of activity and and, uh, secret activities going on, helicopters coming and going. At the other point of the triangle, as we mapped it, there was um, quite a, if you want to say, a mystical experience that Ben Took, that took place uh-huh. there, right across the street from where some more activity of, of uh, government or, or, or clandestine nature seems to be going on. What do you make of that? I mean, uh, it, uh, the pe- our, our remote ancestors would have built temples there, and, and we're doing government experiments. I mean,
0: what? Uh, what? oh, it's not unusual. I mean, for example, I mean, we're, we're dealing here with electromagnetism. And we're yeah. uh, dealing with hotspots. Uh, it's just like when I was researching the crop circle phenomenon back in England. Uh, the army were always the first people to be flying over the new crop circles at five in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. this is, yeah. And this comes from the farmers, that which I interviewed. And they said, well, you know, my, my dogs would be trying to chew their way through a door. My, uh, my cats would be trying to fly through glass, uh, play glass windows. There was something going on. And, of course... Uh, since we uh, are now was able to prove that the crop circles are partly made by ultrasound, uh, those animals are susceptible to that. So mm-hmm. they began to pick up these uh, signals. The farmer goes out with a shotgun thinking that he's, he's got a burglar on his property, and he finds a black helicopter at 5 in the morning, uh, which you can see quite well at that time in the morning in England in summer. Um Uh, hovering over a brand new crop circle on his field, the steam coming out of the crop circle and the helicopter's bristling with high vision equipment, they're taking photographs filming and so they're able to pick up these electromagnetic hotspots on their radar so it's not surprising that even here in America they'll probably be looking at uh, similar events, I mean they'll look at paranormal events or anomalies yes, and just like we do, although they'll be looking at it from a different point of view uh, they go and investigate, so that wouldn't surprise me that they actually do that.
2: So, wait, you, wait, 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 wait. Did, did you just say that crop circles appeared over places that had high electromagnetism?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I've been able to go back to these places five years after they appeared. And, of course, the, uh, there's no physical vestige of the crop circle there. Uh, we can still go there with dowsing equipment and actually find and map the original design on the actual field. Hmm. Those things are alive for years afterwards. And that's what makes them important.
1: You think, the well, shape think is... The, Yeah, the
0: shape is literally just the expression of the energy that creates it, uh, which I was able to link to the forms of sound frequency. But there is an electromagnetic component, and there's no end of a tourist that goes to England and they take their cameras and their video equipment and they put them on the ground. They'll never work again. And I'm one of those people. I mean, I've lost cameras. The BBC has done interviews uh, in crop circles. The moment those cameras cross the perimeter of the design, and this only happens in the real ones, not the fake ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, their equipment goes awry, and it'll never work again. So there is an electromagnetic
1: fingerprint to these things, for sure. I'm wondering if Ben's thinking what I'm thinking. Uh, our guest last night on our CBS edition was uh, <coughs> Edwin Fuhrer of the uh, the Langenberg UFO landings fame in, in Saskatchewan in uh, 1974. Okay, And he was explaining that uh, to this day, on that property, there are signs of the landing. There, there, uh, <coughs> the uh, RCMP took... Well, he said, it was ra- he said it was radiation. It was radioactive, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he said, uh, that still, you can see signs of the um, uh, circular landing area that he, you know, was a witness to, and all this. And uh, what you said certainly stirs up uh, memories of our conversation <laughs> with him last night.
0: Um, uh, and it also makes these plants sterile as well. From those, that's what plants. he said.
1: And nothing uh, will grow there. Yeah.
0: And that's what made people make the connection between that and crop circles. But it's not the same. You See, in the crop circles, the plants are actually stimulated to grow. So the electromagnetic frequency is not radioactive. It's actually a spectrum that's inducing the seeds to actually grow and grow much faster. There's a different spectrum. Uh, And there's a relationship to sacred sites. They have exactly the same history of healings and altered state of awareness. Mm -hmm. And for me, the crop circles are nothing more than an extension of a pyramid or a stone center or a Gothic cathedral, because the same exact things are happening at these places and have been doing so for thousands of years. Uh, And this is why people are also having shamanic experiences in the real crop circles, too. So, it's as if they're filling in a gap uh, in our temple making process because we we really haven't built temples per se since the Gothic cathedrals were being built in the 13th century.
1: And weren't many Uh, of them built on ancient pagan sites? uh,
0: Absolutely. Every single one of them.
1: And just from my seminary education, I know that that much of that was deliberate to make it easier for pagans to become Christians, because usually they had no choice, but...
0: uh, Oh, there's part of that, and that is part of the the trick. I mean, you always try to sort of uh, imprint your own uh, theology on someone else's culture by taking over their sacred sites, but there's much more to it than that. If Mm -hmm. if you look at the people who were doing it for benevolent reasons, and I could sit here naming, you know, the uh, Sabians of Haram, the Zoroastrians, the Cathars, you know, people who really were pursuing... what we would call Christianity in its true ideal, not to subvert people, but to get them to have a a, a personal mystical experience of God for themselves for the purpose of self-empowerment, they would uh, add the sites to uh, original places of veneration to maintain the tradition, uh, not to subvert it. And the reason was to maintain the place alive, because as we know today, uh, our prayers, for example, they emit electromagnetic fingerprints, and this is proved by uh, Princeton University. Mm-hmm. And those prayers over time, on a hot spot which is already electromagnetic, it's only going to uh, make the place remember and uh, stay alive for years to come. So that's why we go back to these places, to maintain that connection and have these shamanic experiences.
1: Hmm. Well, uh, certainly we... Um, yeah, go ahead, Ben. All right. Um, well, let's, let's take that a step farther back
2: in time from the time of Christianity. So... Nobody really knows much about the Druids, but do you know anything about the part they played in any of this?
0: Uh, they were pretty much uh, related to the Gnostic uh, movement and the mystery schools. Uh, in fact, <laughs> if you read the uh, annals of Julius Caesar, he was totally frustrated and <laughs> fascinated by them. He couldn't wait to get rid of them, but he also was <laughs> yeah, totally true. trying to figure out what on earth were they doing. I mean, they knew about the movement of the stars, they knew about the planets, they knew about uh, the manipulation of energy. Uh, there's a hint that they seem to have known something about the raising of stones with subtle forces. Uh, so they basically were just another... Uh, they were the Celtic group uh, of the agnostic mystery schools, just the same as they were practicing in Egypt thousands of years before. Uh, these people always uh, throughout Europe and the Middle East They all communicated with each other. Uh, The secrets were handed down verbally. Uh, And just like in Egypt, where you take 20 years to go to school and learn the mysteries before you're even allowed near a pyramid, the same thing was true of the Druids. You had to go to at least 10 to 15 years of indoctrination into the mysteries before they even allowed you to do anything with subtle energy because they realized the, the importance of this stuff, that when you start having this direct communication with a creative source, uh, it can get to your head you know, your ego does go through this uh, process where you think you know I am God and I can do whatever the, the hell I like and I think that the, the difference with the druids was that they were able to initially control that and teach people to harness it for the common good so that you may, uh, you're able to achieve a certain level of self-determination. and when you have that, uh, you don't start getting into the process of developing religions for con- the control of, uh, of nations. Mm-hmm. You develop it for the common good of the people around you, and you elevate uh, the people who you're, you, you're with, and that's what leads to a transcendental uh, sort of state of mind. In other words, I mean, they used to have a word for it. It was called the, the great perfection. Uh, the Tibetans used to call it that. Uh, we used to call it the ascension in the Christian world, and the Druids just used to call it, you know, being at one with the uh, with the universe. So these things basically, uh, these experiences uh, led you to the same... Uh, and awake and in total control of your uh, faculties hmm. uh, very dangerous if you're trying to be controlled
1: oh yes uh, speaking <laughs> of the druids have you been i'm sure you've been to wistman's wood on dartmoor
0: you know every time i passed it i have never been able to find it and there's probably a good reason for that but i'm very aware of it
1: oh okay well actually i did manage to find it and it's it's um Ironically, it's right across the, the River Dart from a, a military firing range, which, you know, talk about the presence of the military. But it's, it's it's a very strange place. The, the oak trees are very ancient. They're not more than 10 to 15 feet tall, perhaps. And it's a place where traditionally, anyway, Druids hid from the Romans in ancient times when times were not quite as merry as they are today. And what happened, and I had an experience there that was, was quite remarkable, uh, because the energies, as you might suspect, are absolutely overwhelming. And you walk in and talk about a change of consciousness, which is the next, next subject we wanted to talk about at such places. I happened to look up, and there was a a half figure I could see from his waist up, all dressed in furs, and it was sort of looking off into the distance. And I couldn't see anything below his waist. And I said, okay. Uh, I took a few pictures, nothing came out, The I was totally alone, no one else was there, it was a wonderful Moorish, I should say, a Moorland, mo- March day, dreary, just my kind of weather, I tend to like austere weather, mm-hmm. the was atmosphere like, was up. perfect, and uh, <laughs> he, 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 finally he turned very slow, it was almost a watery kind of a movement, and, and looked through me, he was perhaps 20 feet away, i didn 't get the impression that he saw me, but I said, what is this? Is this a, a druid I mean, you know better than I have mountains of ancestors who came from that area. maybe it was it an ancestor i don 't know uh, but th- this is the sort of thing that I suppose illustrates the uh, altered state of consciousness that you 're talking about at such places i mean
0: what oh, do- absolutely uh, I totally understand what you've, uh, what you 've experienced cause I, I mean i 've had the same thing happen to myself as well, and the funny thing is. If you go to these places, and you can do it in North America, I mean, there's a, in, in Connecticut, there's a place called Gungy Womp where people have exactly the same experiences.
1: Oh, I know where that is, Yeah,
0: has a, It has a geomagnetic hotspot as well. Mm-hmm. Um, these places really are alive. I mean, they are uh, living organisms, and I think if you go there expecting to see something, you won't. Uh, uh-huh. I think you have to be of a certain humble state of mind i agree and of an the h openness.
1: word <laughs> yeah
0: yeah you, you, you approach it in, in humility and also uh, uh, you, you you ask and i think if yeah, your resonance a- is of a certain let's say you're a radio station and uh, that ra- your radio station happens to coincide with the frequency of each individual site, that site opens up to you and it gives you back something that you are searching for and and these answers are very personal i mean each vision is very personal i mean we are here on an individual journey of uh, introspection, uh, which is, which leads us to have an experience uh, of the creative source so that we can better ourselves. There's nothing else to do here but to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the ego gets in the way, and, and attractive girls as well, but that's another story. <laughs> um, but yes, it's, uh, it's to do with, uh, uh, in any other uh, word, uh, this strange enlightening experience is to have a shamanic Moment where you are able to pierce the veil, so to speak, and in that moment you suddenly realize you're, uh, you're part of a much bigger picture, and that what brings you closer to the concept of God uh, in a non religious capacity. It's to have that experience to realize you're not just a, uh, flesh and bone, uh, there's something of you that's connected to a much bigger picture. And it's those little events where whether you see some of the history of the site, or the guardians of the site, or something is revealed to you. Uh, that's part of that experience uh, and in fact the the, uh, this, the people who guard Stonehenge um, have some very interesting experiences i when I was living over there i I, I would go there in the evenings and have a little cup of tea uh, and we just sort of shoot the breeze and they're very nice people I mean these are ex uh, green berets that used to go around the opposing governments mm-hmm. and they're now retired and they get sort a nice night job to get away from their uh, wives and uh, you know they say you know it's funny you'd think that We'd be here at night guarding a bunch of old rocks. And after the first apparition of a Roman army, it changes your life. <laughs>
1: yeah, I would think so. Holy places. Well, we're going to take a short commercial break here behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on W O O 1240 AM and com. If you are watching on com, you probably can have the uh, disconcerting experience of actually seeing us on your webcam or our webcam. And here is the book, we're talking about this evening, Freddie Silva, Legacy of the Gods, the Origin of Sacred Sites, and the Rebirth of Ancient Wisdom. And we will be right back to continue our conversation.
0: Owen Radio, Owen
1: Worldwide. Hi, I'm Margaret from I listen to Nemi Lane every Sunday, 1 to 4 on WON 1248
0: Tune in to the Memory Lane Show. More music from
1: the 50s and 60s. O-N Radio.
0: O-N Worldwide.
1: And I wanted to just mention that Amazon Kindle Fire, the new e-reader, and the, which also does apps, movies, the web, and more, has finally been released on the 15th of November, I believe, and it is now shipping. $199.00. Uh, for this marvelous device. Goes a step ahead of the regular Kindle, which in itself is a great device. You can get that for as low as $79. And, excuse me, you can read a number of books, up to 900,000 books, uh, I should say books, newspapers, and magazines, in addition to movies and apps and much more on your, uh, Kindle or Kindle Fire, I should say. And uh, I say check it out at Staples, and you can get, of course, four of my books, uh, Faces at the Window, Footsteps in the Attic, Rhode Island, A Genial History, and my last one, uh, published in 2006, The um, Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny. So check it out, Kindle Fire, Staples, or Amazon.com. And let me also mention, I'm sure, Freddie, uh, our guest is uh, Legacy of the Gods, I'm sure, is on Kindle, is it not?
0: i have imagined it will be.
1: <laughs> okay, well, if it's not, we'll check it out, Legacy of the Gods, uh, by Freddie Silva, S-I-L-V-A. Very good. So, we'll come back to our conversation now with Freddie. Ben, did you have any... Uh, I wanted to get into the um, change of consciousness at places like this. I'm you know, thinking of also that herb farm in Connecticut where you, you were seven years old. Yes, yeah. I was
2: seven years old. Were are right. not giving Freddie a no. chance to wait, get wait, a 7? No, I was older than that. I was like eight or nine.
1: Well, anyway, Freddie, I don't know, probably never told you this before, but we uh, got a call way back before I allowed Ben to do any of this, and it was a an herb farm in Connecticut. And they had said uh, not that they were having uh, any... Issues paranormally, but it was a very interesting place that we might I might want to come and see it. A very innocuous kind of thing in this location, they had built a lovely little tower over a spot that was one of great energy. You could feel the energy just sort of pounding out of the ground. I had been suffering some from some internal bleeding. I stood in this spot just quietly, it disappeared. All right, so I essentially was healed. Ben came Wait, what? with two of his friends. You had internal bleeding? Yeah, well, it's a long story. I'll tell you. Where have you been? You were, well, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't really remember. I, I was well, don't eight. Don't worry. I'm not going to die just yet. I was eight. Okay, okay. eight. <laughs> So anyway, just uh yeah and, and you <laughs> sounds like a personal family conversation. Yeah, sorry about into. that. That happens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, you know they shock my son now and then. Uh, you were there too, and I have a photograph of you standing there and uh, sort of enjoying the, just sort of basking in the, in the goodness of this of this energy. And you know, I, I thought maybe there's a divine presence here. I tried to thank this, pre- but it didn't want to be thanked. It just wanted to give, and that was a learning experience for me. You know, because um it's I don't a, know, but this just. So is this what you're talking about when you're talking about altered states and and interaction and good things happening in these uh, sacred places?
0: Yeah, I mean, the veil between worlds is very thin at these places, and that's what our ancestors were trying to point out. Uh, And uh, when they've learned that, uh, they call these places the landscape temples.
1: This place had a statue that would move. You know, they find it in different positions, (laughs) sort of thing.
0: (laughs) Uh, and they call these places sort of navels of the earth as well. And then eventually, with uh, you know, by the time we get to the uh, era of the Egyptians, we start building human constructed temples on the same principles uh, to recreate those effects. And uh, if you actually uh, dissect these places and look at the myths behind them, and then apply science to it, you actually find that there is a, a good logic to what they were doing.
1: So and has was, this been uh, carried? O- I'm sorry, has this been carried over into into more modern religious architecture? As we said, there. One does find churches in the middle of nowhere in, in the UK with, you know, they're built uh, in the midst of stone circles or with uh, ancient oh, absolutely. earthworks. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, there was an awareness well, of this.
0: Oh, totally. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even when the church lost the plot and they used it as a control issue, I mean, there were people within the church that knew and wanted to continue the old pagan tradition. I mean, pagan yeah. means nothing more than someone who lives in the countryside. That's all,
1: That's it? right. Yeah. Well, it, it's That's an invent. It's a Christian word, really.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so um, well, the, the point was that uh, if, you, if you find some of these churches in the middle of nowhere, and there's one on Dartmoor, uh, which we talked about earlier, uh, called St. Michael's, and I actually take tour oh, yeah. groups up there to ask them, why on earth would anybody build a church on top of a uh, half of rock that you have to slide down when it's raining uh, and <laughs> break your, your legs? five miles from the nearest uh, uh, center of population. It makes no sense unless there's a reason why it should be there. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to what I was saying before about how all of these places occupy hotspots of uh, you know, magnetic and geomagnetic energy. And, uh, and if you follow that through and uh, you realize that the temples are there uh, to benefit uh, one thing mainly, and that is the human being, and you look at uh, who you are, you find that, uh, for example, most of the rocks that were carefully used in all the temples around the world have a very high degree of magnetite uh, in them. Uh, this is why the uh, uh, chambers of the Great Pyramids, the, uh, the rocks were brought from 400 miles away. Uh, so when you put yourself into that environment, you're in a certain sort of kind of an induction chamber uh, where not only the frequencies drop to a certain level, but also the magnetite that surrounds it is creating its own magnetic field. So if you look at the amount of iron that's found... Flowing through the uh, blood of the human body. Uh, if you remember that wonderful example when you're at school and you take a piece of paper and you sprinkle some iron filings on the paper, and then you take a bar uh, sorry you take a uh, horseshoe magnet and you put it under the paper and you watch the iron filings follow the path of the magnet. That's essentially what is what's happening to you inside one of these places. Um, your body is being rearranged in a certain way. And you also have inside your skull, uh, you have floating uh, millions and millions of little particles of magnetite as well. So it, it, the, the sight influences that state of awareness inside your head. So when you start seeing visions and old states and uh, things coming out of the woodwork and out of stones, uh, it's, you're not going mad. It's actually your brain is starting to adjust to its environment. And at that moment, you have pierced the veil. And so, then you better be careful what you ask for, because you might get it. That's it might be right. quite startling.
1: Yes. <laughs> we had dr michael persinger on uh, the inventor of among other things the god helmet as it was uh, rather jocularly referred to and of course he would uh, use electrodes and this helmet as well to st- stimulate electrically certain areas of the brain and people would have near death experiences and uh, religious experiences and things much uh, experiences They're such similar. as many that you described and the ultimate question to him was does this mean that it's artificial, or the experience is, is legitimate, or, or, or both? I mean, are you artificially stimulating the opening of real doors? What say you on all that?
0: Oh, I think it's both. I think if you go in with a certain amount of ego, and this relates to anything, really. I mean, if you want something to happen that badly, you will have an experience, because you want it to happen, and you start creating this environment inside your head, but it's coming totally from you, which is why you have go back to the ancient texts and see how they approached the subject and one of the things they did uh, again before they allowed you anywhere near a sacred site was to remove yourself from your ego Mm
1: -hmm.
0: uh, and at that point when you've actually removed uh, yourself uh, from the equation you start putting yourself in a a place of centeredness and when you are centered you are able to go in with grace into these places Uh, then you have a valid experience you see and the superstitions for example under Bernard of Clairvaux were very big on that. I mean, these are the people who actually were the brainchild behind the Knights Templar, uh, the original Templars, and they always chose places which were out of the way. Uh, they were in some of the most decrepit parts of the earth, and they turned them into the beautiful little paradises. Because part of the uh, idea was to put yourself into a hermetic environment where you basically uh, stop communicating with the rest of the material world, which you know back in the 12th century was extremely problematic. And also, the desire to have material wealth was very, very big. So, if you remove all of these very material possessions from uh, from temptation or the devil, as they became known, uh, you put yourself in a state of grace and a sense sort of state uh, of oneness, and you are much more able to communicate with these hotspots and have a much more valid experience.
1: Well, that makes it makes sense. So, another, I suppose, there is no such thing as the ultimate question. They keep getting deeper. One might ask, where did all this knowledge come from for our remote ancestors?
0: Ah, now that's where, uh, going back to the pyramids and to the Puranas of the Tamil culture of southern India, uh, which is one of our oldest uh, shared sort of uh, books, you could say, on ancient mythology. Uh, if you start looking at the origin of where the, all of these things came from, uh, I can't remember the person who was doing the research on this, uh, but they finally, just through a uh, simple logic of, of looking at the events in the Puranas, that they were able to link it to events of catastrophes throughout the last 10,000 years and quite categorically uh, prove that these texts describing ancient cities of knowledge and the temples that resided in them uh, in a time that goes back to at least 15,000 BC. And this is a very different time. This is the time before the big global flood uh, inundated the Earth. and This has been accurately dated to 9, and, sorry, 9,703 B.C., according to the uh, records up in, in the uh, ice cap in Greenland. And um, just before this incredible catastrophe took place, uh, they talk about these cities of knowledge that were built, built by people of extraordinary size and mind. Uh, and they, they compare these people to creator gods And these people knew how to harness the forces of nature to bend to their will. And they were able to build these temples so that people could experience uh, an otherworldly effect to let them know that they were not just nuts and bones and and, uh, physical bodies, but they're also spiritual people. Uh, So the concept of the temple goes back way, way beyond the time when we began to rebuild these things on the face of the earth. Because after the flood, if you start reading the Egyptian texts, they pick up the story. And they talk about how in different parts of the world, there were people who were told by the gods to build an ark uh, and bring on board uh, all different kinds of species. And inside this ark, they were to take uh, seven sages. And this story is repeated again and again and again. It's not just a biblical story. It goes uh, on throughout most of Asia by cultures who supposedly had no contact with each other. Well, these people these seven sages were supposed to be the uh, the emblem of the entire knowledge of uh, the temple culture and after the uh, the arcs grounded at different parts of the world these seven sages came out and it was their charge to rebuild the former world of the gods and part of the way that they were supposed to do this was to build uh, these cities of knowledge that we today call temples at specific points on the face of the earth that would bring back the original mansions of the gods and the idea was to bring back a state of paradise where people could go and, uh, and experience the total perfection of how the universe exists. Uh, so the story is very, very old, but it's interesting that in talking about these uh, people that survived the flood, these seven sages, they were described as builder gods because they're the ones that built. And they were described in the Egyptian texts uh, as the Ahau or the Aku Shemsu Hor, uh, also translated as the followers of Horus. And they are described on the walls of the Temple of Edfu in Egypt as standing nine cubits tall. Uh, That's 15 feet in height. And you may wonder, were these people smoking something? (laughs) Uh, But no, uh, in fact, uh, these people were supposedly traveled all the way across to the northern parts of Europe. They may have actually ended up in Britain, and we have in Britain thousands of giant graves. In fact, you can go to any map in in a store in England, get a map, and there you'll find giant graves very clearly printed on these maps. Yeah, I have right of them. next to yeah. two of them. Hmm. And they've unearthed bones there, and specifically during the Victorian era, they unearthed one skeleton, which wasn't just a skeleton, it still had the meat and the skin attached to it. And there was a photograph that was printed in Strand magazine in eighteen ninety eight, which I have a copy of. It's actually in the book, of a fifteen foot tall giant taken from a giant's grave, still with the meat attached to the bone uh, so these things obviously were real. These people were real. And they were always interred in these things, in these enormous mounds throughout the, uh, the north of Europe.
2: You don't know, hear that in history class.
0: <laughs>
2: <No>. <laughs> right, uh So when it comes to sacred sites, are there differences in belief and practice, or is it pretty much the same thing globally?
0: Oh, I think fundamentally it's the same thing. It's just how different cultures approach it. And uh, But I think the one thing that seems to unite them all is a, a state of reverence a state of grace uh, to a state where you put yourself into uh, a non-dualistic environment. In other words, you remove your ego from the equation. Uh, there's also a little bit of fasting involved because the idea was to make your physical body as light as possible uh, to have this experience with a much finer level of uh, frequency. And, and
1: we're equation. always trying to explain that to people, yeah.
0: Exactly. And in fact, in Egypt, it's actually quite uh, uh, quite good whenever I take groups there. Uh, and I'm a big meat eater uh, uh, anyway, but whenever I go there, I have no problem just taking a big bottle of water and just eating dried apricots all day long. I can survive on that very easily. And you'd be amazed at the difference that it does to you when you walk into these places, feeling much lighter. Uh, it does make a huge difference. Um, there's also, of course, the uh, idea of sound and uh, you look at the Egyptian text and how they revered the temple by actually approaching it first thing in the morning when they claimed that the uh, temple came back to life and they approached each part of the temple and they addressed it like an animate being who is awoken from sleep so they described the temple as, a, as, a, as an organism, not as a bunch of rocks but as an organism and I was able to find uh, a reference to this in some uh, scientific texts that were and tests that were found in uh, northern Europe back in the 70s where people actually took magnetometers to these stone circles and they did find that uh, the local environment, the electrical environment and the magnetic environment around the temples of Europe, um, it does die away at night and suddenly just before dawn the readings go right back up, sometimes at uh, twice the amount of the frequency of the surrounding land and they have shove uh, these uh, energies uh, at twice the rate through the entrance of the site. And it's true. They did find that these places, these stone circles, uh, these uh, hench monuments, pyramids, they do suddenly revitalize themselves at the crack of dawn. Wow. Uh, exactly the same time when the, all the, uh, the fertility of plants also is at its highest frequency to receive the light of the, the newborn sun. So there is this practice of that uh, you know, to, to honor the veneration of the rising sun uh, throughout the world as well. So for all of you who don't like getting up early in the morning, that's bad news. But uh, <laughs> the frequency, that sort of is descending as the day gets longer and longer. So, but those are pretty much the same things that happen throughout the same time. And, uh, it's, I mean, you have to sort of look at it from the point of view that you know, doing drugs when you go to these places, like doing ayahuasca, is really not uh, conducive to experiencing Excuse me, the full blast of energy at these temples. It actually gets in the way.
1: Oh yeah, no, no. Yeah. We, we always whenever we talk about that, we always stress we're not. We, we never encourage that sort of thing. Ben no, and I, we don't need thing. any th- stimulation of that no. kind. No, of. <laughs> yeah. But that, I mean, that, the
0: ritual use of these of, the, of these hallucinogens is in actual part as they. Uh, how should I say it? If you're doing it correctly for the with the right intent, uh, and it has been done for thousands of years, uh, it really is supposed to be a. Uh, a second best uh, experience of going to a temple. So if you can't go to a temple, that's what you would do uh, to have a similar shamanic experience. Uh, but if you have ready access to these places, uh, and there's lots in America, I mean, they're all over the place, especially in the Appalachia, uh, and also in Ohio, we have thousands of mounds. Uh, you don't really need that kind of stuff. You could just have the temple be your own drug.
2: Mm. mm. That works. All right, so what about, like, sacred places that have been destroyed by explosions or gunfire or whatever during, like, wars or whatever. Let, let's say, um, i trying to think of a good example. Uh, was it Pakistan? There was, the, there was the Buddha statue that was carved oh, yeah, into the mountain. Yeah.
1: Or, uh, you know, Afgan- the, the, the or Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Or the
2: Taliban destroyed yeah. it. Yeah. like how, how would the
1: horror of the rest of
2: the world. Uh, using that as an example, how would this site react to something like that?
0: Not favorably. <laughs>
2: no. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think so. Um,
0: good I mean, course. it takes... Uh, the, the, the Egyptians were very clear about uh, the idea of what made the state space. And, uh, you know, you could just... Uh, it was one thing to move the energy around and put it some way where you needed it. Uh, they actually described it as harnessing the enemy snake, which basically is a metaphor for moving the Earth's telluric lines of energy, uh, which anyone... Can, I can actually teach anyone how to do this. It's actually quite simple. Uh, kind of like driving a car uh, that gives you one hell of a headache, though. Uh, and these places, then were, uh, these these enemy snakes were then harnessed. They were anchored at a spot by the type of stone that they used. And then the, the energy of the snake became conducive uh, to a certain point of view. Um, so the, the, uh, and that itself wasn't enough. You, you didn't have to build a temple according to a certain geometric protocol uh, to a certain use of uh, sacred measure. Uh, not all measures are the same. And then uh... over time as the temples are built and rebuilt on top of each other and thousands of people go there to venerate it their energy is there at the site as well and the site and the stones remember because remember the uh, the stones themselves have a lot of quartz quartz is pure to electric it is susceptible also to thought and emotion and one of the things that you did before you walked into the temple was to leave all your negative thoughts outside because if you took your negative emotions into the temple uh you would pollute the mansion of the gods and you bring down not just yourself, but the entire tribe. Mm -hmm. And they were very serious about this. Uh, So it was the build-up over time which created this sense of energy. So if, um, let's take, for example, uh, England, uh, and around the uh, approving grounds in the middle of England, which is called Salisbury Plain, uh, oddly enough, there are some of the best preserved sacred sites because they tend to not shoot at these things. And uh, you go to some of these mounds and they're pretty much active. But the ones that have been uh, accidentally uh, sort of devoured by the local farmers uh, to increase the, uh, the size of land that they want to yield their crops, um, you do find that depending on who's gone back there to revitalize the concept of sacred space, the site may be gone, but the energy is still there. Uh, it's just like I was saying before with the crop circles. You know, the, the physical shape has gone, but the energy is still there. So if people go and maintain the tradition of the sacred space, they are literally using their intent to keep the energy going. The physical spite doesn't really matter anymore. The fact is that the memory of the site remains. But if they let it go and these places are forgotten, then obviously just like a flower that doesn't get watered, they eventually just die and you just get, you forget about them. So it really depends on the people who are looking after them after the physical remains have been
1: disturbed. Hmm. Yeah, I have noticed that uh, some people in England would say well, I visited, for example, the Skorhill Stone Circle in Devon, and uh, that seemed to be reactive, Others were not. But before we run out of time here, I, I just I, I have one question that I wanted to ask and not 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 neglect to ask this time. The um, there are a number of astronomers who will when you ask them this, put down their coffee and look at you strangely, but answer honestly, and they'll say that a number of uh, very odd electromagnetic phenomena are going on in the galactic neighborhood right now. Much has been made of the 2012 thing, you know, and, and that the galactic neighborhood is flattening out, the, the system is flattening out, the, all this business, and that this is creating all sorts of electromagnetic anomalies. Have you, as a researcher in this subject, noticed... Anything changing, or odd, or more active, or less active that might possibly be connected with these uh, changes in the neighborhood, so to speak.
0: Um, well, answering from the point of view of sacred space, and also the, and I'm putting the crop circles into that. Um, I have found over the last twenty years, and uh, I'm I mean, just back this up. Um, what I found during my research into the book was that uh, our uh, building of sacred spaces as a race to congregate in certain clumps around history and they always precede major catastrophes it's as if something we just down all our tools and go on a big binge of creating temples no matter what they look like mm. and the last time we built one on uh, mass was in northern europe with the gothic cathedrals in the 12th century mm-hmm. that preceded just barely a mini ice age which only uh, concluded in the uh, 18th century That's right. uh, early 19th century and since then nothing has happened and the crop circles filling in that gap because they are ba- built exactly of the same principles as any temple in the world and they are having the same effect and they're also appearing on the same magnetic lines of energy of the earth and we are also now approaching a change in climate uh, rising sea levels uh, changes in the sun sunspot cycle and what i've witnessed is that more and more people are going back to the sacred sites, and they may not really know consciously why but i think these places are coming alive and because we are susceptible to that energy I think we are going back to the core of these places, these spots of the fawn, uh, and uh, trying to pick up our connection to the environment. Because when it comes down to it, that's what it's all about. Our survival is really literally down to our connection to the universe, nature. And we've forgotten that. And by being more attuned to it, I know it sounds corny, but it's
1: absolutely It sounds true. like a very, very good thing.
0: Yeah, by being more attuned to it, we actually are able to, Uh, uh, be much more prepared for the changes and uh, and the changes are here, the changes have been happening and with us for hundreds of years and they will continue for hundreds of years Uh, 2012 is just a window but I do believe that these temples were built as an insurance policy for us to remember what we'd forgotten because they realized that we would forget our connection and uh, by watching people going much more to these places, taking much more of an active involvement in these sites, I think that we are part of that awakening and that we are beginning to feel that shift is, is upon us. Um, I personally don't think anything's going to happen at the end of 2012 unless a mass amount of people on Earth suddenly make it happen.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: and, of course, we have the power to do that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be a shame. I would hate to sort of come all the way uh, this far to incarnate in this lifetime and just watch it all go down because a bunch of people suddenly panics and they start believing the hype.
1: Well, there are uh, I always, think we'll still be here. There are always alternatives. Exactly. As, I as Mr. Think Spock would say. Yeah. Let yeah. me ask you this, and so we do have a few more minutes. Uh, Freddie, what experiences, uh, can you give, an ex- give us an example of an experience you have had at such places?
0: Oh, God, yeah, many. Um, and again, I should point out to people who are listening that I, I don't go to these places experiencing something to happen. I was actually raised as a Catholic and became an atheist for obvious reasons, and then discovered through going to these sites uh, 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 something far greater than myself that is... Basically made me much more spiritual yet again, mm-hmm. but without a religious point of view. Right. And um, so I don't go to these places expecting something to happen. And uh, when they do happen, uh, yeah, it, I could mention some expletives. <laughs> 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 um, there's one case, uh, one uh, famous thing that happened when I was in the pyramid in Egypt, the Great Pyramid. And I was there with three other people. And uh, anybody that's been there knows that the only way to get the place to yourself is to play, uh, pay a lot of back sheesh to the people that run these places. And um, we were there in the middle of the day. The place was packed with people, kids running up and down the Great Gallery, making a hell of a racket. And suddenly, everybody vanished, leaving four of us inside the King's Chamber. The lights went off, and we had a place to ourselves in total darkness for 20 minutes. That does not happen by accident. And uh, one of the men that was with me said that uh, I, I belong to a part of a group that does work at sacred sites very quietly. And uh, they asked me to do a little bit of toning at the site uh, to honor the site. I said, I can do that. And I found myself coming up with notes that I've never been able to do then or since, as did the other three men. And as we did this vocal exercise, in total darkness, I saw, with three people as my witness, I saw a group of about 30 people, about nine feet tall, coming out of the stones of the chamber surrounding us. In these beautiful white sort of silk robes, beautiful things. I'm in total darkness, and I can see these people to the point I could draw them.
1: How tall were anyway, they?
0: And they were about tall. nine feet tall. And uh, really? afterwards, the light, twenty minutes later, the lights went on, and we looked shocked. And I could see that they wanted that these people wanted to say something, and we, we quietly made our way out of the, uh, the, the pyramid. There was a very angry Arab at the bottom who realized that something had happened that should have been happening, and he was blaming us for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, once outside, I looked at one of the guys, and it was obvious that we had something to say to each other. And I said, Did you see what I saw? And he just said, You mean all of those people that came out of the rocks and surrounded us in a big circle dressed in white? You saw that as well? I said, Absolutely. What was that all about? Now, you can't make that up.
1: Did you see their faces?
0: Far- uh No. They didn't that- show their faces. They had these beautiful sort of hoods over them. It was the most incredible feeling of. Total unconditional love. It really was the most profound experience.
1: I think we know that species. Okay. <laughs> All right.
0: And the funny thing is, when I began to, and I had a sense that I went, that I received this uh, information, and the information eventually became the book that we're talking about this evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, that stuff just came pouring out of me. So that was the intent that I went in there with. I wanted to help to understand how these places work, so I could teach
1: it. Okay. And I well, think we, that
0: experience is related to that.
1: Well, I'm afraid Thanks. we're out of time, Freddie. It's been absolutely fascinating. Could you tell us about the book on the website just very quickly?
0: Yes, you can go to it at uh, www.invisibletemple.com. It's called Legacy of the Gods, although it has a slightly different title on my site, and it will be explained why. And there's all kinds of special offers there as well, videos and all kinds of things, and tons of information. You'll never
1: leave. Excellent. It's been wonderful to have you back again. We're going to have you back again soon because there are a thousand questions we didn't have a chance to answer. So, Freddie, thank you very much. Freddie Silver, thank you, gentlemen, very good. Thank you. Renaissance man. Okay. So many thanks to our producer, Steve Bianchi, and we'll see you next Monday, November 28th, when we will welcome back the great Murray Silver, Hollywood insider, Washington insider, and renowned paranormal expert from the Savannah, Georgia area. Certainly one of our most popular guests. Anything can happen when Murray is with us. All
2: right, so don't forget, we have all of our podcasts, show schedules, and guest information on our website, www.behindtheparanormal.com. And on our regular CBS edition on November 27th, we'll have a paranormal tour of Scotland with author Jeff Holder. And that will be live at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific on CBS New Sky Radio in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Seattle, and online at
1: www.newskyradio.com. And, uh, again, uh, just as Ben said, don't forget BehindTheParanormal.com, almost 300 webs- uh, three hundred websites. No, you have 300, 300
2: websites.
1: Yes, and we're coming up on show number 300. Not all of them were numbered, so the early ones put it well over 300, but we're planning a very special show for our 300th, 300th anniversary, so to speak. And uh, that will be on CBS News Sky, so stay tuned for information on that. I leave you this evening with a thought from that really bizarre Irish author and strange thinker, stranger than us, Oscar Wilde. Quote, it is a very sad thing that nowadays there is, no, there is so much, let me start that again. It is a very sad thing that nowadays there is so little useless information, unquote.
2: Thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey and we will see you next time.